Welcome to the Grace Story Podcast, where inspiring stories are brought to life. This podcast is made possible by Grace College and Seminary, located on the shores of Winona Lake in the great state of Indiana. I'm your host, Dr. Drew Flam. This is the Grace Story Podcast. Today, our guest on the podcast is Dr. David Dockery. Dr. Dockery has had a storied career in Christian higher education since graduating from Grace Seminary. Dr. Dockery was elected the 15th president of Union University in Jackson, Tennessee on December 8, 1995. During his tenure, the university saw an increase in student enrollment from 1,975 to 4,288, including 16 straight years of increased enrollments. During that same time, the number of donors to the university more than tripled. The significant increase in giving to the university included more than 25 of the largest gifts to Union. After serving at Union, he served as the 15th president of Trinity International University, where he now serves as chancellor. Dr. Dockery has had a prominent platform nationwide. He's been quoted in numerous publications from the Washington Post, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Bloomberg, and Forbes. And he's also been interviewed on CNN, NBC, ABC, MSNBC, and Fox News, along with countless radio shows. Dockery has served as the chair of the board of directors for the Council of Christian Colleges and University and the Consortium for Global Education, and on the boards of Christianity Today International and the Tennessee Independent Colleges and Universities Association, among many, many others. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dockery. Thank you, Drew. It's a privilege to be here. Well, I had to cut down that bio, and it's still one of the longest I have ever read. Um, and as somebody ha- who has been in Christian higher ed at multiple mm. universities, I-, I understand the impact you've had mm. on our sector, which is private Christian higher education. Mm. So thank you. And uh, thank you for even gracing us with your presence oh. at Grace College. And uh, it's Seminary a joy well. to be here. It really is. We've enjoyed uh, being back on campus. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about um, how you got to Grace Seminary and then a little bit about your time here. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I grew up in a Southern Baptist home. And so I'm originally from Birmingham, Alabama, mm. and uh, had uh, been involved at uh, the University of Alabama as a student in the work of Campus Crusade for Christ. And so while at uh, the University of Alabama, I had the privilege uh, one summer to spend six or seven weeks at what they call an Institute for Biblical Studies. Mm-hmm. A very intense time learning how to study the Bible, uh, first really uh, serious reading of theology, learning a little bit about apologetics. Mm. It was a transformational time for me. I look back, and that summer was really the key to changing the direction of my life. Wow. And so I, I, I don't know how you explain a call to ministry. Everybody's just a little different. But I knew that if the Lord would allow me to teach the Bible and to, you know, to study it like I'd learned how to study it, even deeper, uh, to teach to others, that's what I felt led to do. And so everyone in my context was uh, thinking about going to a, a different uh, seminary. And so I applied there, and, and I, but I applied too late. Uh, and got put on a waiting list. And the person there said, well, perhaps you could 
consider Grace in Indiana. They're very good school. Well, I was also, just after I graduated the University of Alabama for one year, my wife and I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee. So forgive the long story here, mm, but no, this is great. Uh, the headmaster was a Grace graduate. Oh, wow. And so I taught Bible and coached basketball for in high school. And um, he said, do you ought to go check Grace out? Hmm. And so we came up for a visit, and we liked it. We didn't know anybody here. And the only thing we knew about Grace was a counselor at another institution had said maybe consider it, and this headmaster had done so. We came up here. We didn't know anyone, didn't know anyone on the faculty, didn't know any other students, and uh, we fell in love with the place, fell in love with fellow students, and faculty were amazing. We had three of the best years of our life. Here, here on this campus, it it has it's filled with special memories, and we've been uh, privileged to relive some of those during this homecoming weekend. Yeah, you said even today you walk around <laughs> McLean Hall, which was the stomping grounds of the seminary in in that time period, and uh, retold some stories. And what what's one story you remember from your seminary days? Well, I, I had great uh, professors and four or five in particular that really shaped my life. Uh, Chuck Smith, who taught theology, really taught me for the first time how to think theologically, and that has been the trajectory of my mm. life in some ways. I had a professor uh, taught Old Testament Hebrew named Don Fowler, very caring person, tried to emulate some of that and how to care for students uh, since those years. And then... There was the New Testament department here was stellar. John Sproul, Homer Kent, James Boyer. I took all of them for just about every class I could mm. take. So I, I learned how to study the New Testament well with those men guiding me. And um, so, so I, I, I relive some of those classes today. One of my favorite stories. And you, you have to understand the context. There was an Old Testament professor here named Herb Bess. Now, he taught Old Testament backgrounds. He'd been here a long time, brilliant man. Uh, but the most typical, stereotypical, absent-minded professor I've ever met. <laughs> People used to raise their hands in class and ask some abstract question. He would chase rabbits, you know, here and there. And he was known as the great rabbit chaser, but you could ask any question he was willing to talk about. Oh, wow. He just kind of, a, you know, authority about everything. Um, but uh, one day I was with another professor, and he was on the second floor of McLean, and we were coming up from the first floor. So it's a, a you know, a V-shaped stairway mm -hmm. platform in the middle. And we met right there in the middle. And so the two professors needed to have a little conversation together. So I just kind of stood off to the side. And then they talked for, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes, something like that. It seemed like a long time to me because I was just standing there. And then Dr. Bess turned to the other professor and said, Don, was I going up the stairs or down the stairs? <laughs> and uh, my friend said, uh, Dr. Bess, you were coming down and we were coming up. And then this is the classic line. Well, good. Then I've had lunch. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so Dr. Bess was the uh. ultimate absent-minded professor, but a, a wonderful man. And uh, But there are a lot of stories uh, like that that uh, dear to my heart. So when you... Um left Grace Seminary, was the idea of being 
in Christian higher education leadership uh, something you were thinking about or um, was your plan still, I'm going into pastoral I was, ministry? I wanted eventually to teach. That was my goal. Hmm. I wanted to be on a, a faculty. Okay. Uh, if the Lord would allow that. I knew it was not an easy thing, you know. Uh, but I also thought that if I could get some pastoral experience, that would be helpful hmm. because I w- would have been happy to teach in college, but I wanted to teach some in seminary. And if you're going to train pastors, you need to understand a bit about church life and what mm. they're doing. So we were blessed. Uh, we we I, I did three other degrees once I left Grace, all in Texas. And wow. so I did two other master's degrees and a PhD uh, there. And um, But we had an invitation in the early 80s uh, to come and serve as pastor at the Metropolitan Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York. So these Alabama kids, my wife's from Alabama also, here we go to New York City, really cross-cultural ministry for us um, in the Bensonhurst Bay Ridge area. Um, it, it was it was stretching in every way, mm. but just terrific years. And the Lord blessed our work. The church grew. Uh, people came. I was, I'm not a, a very good preacher, but I the Lord has gifted me to be a pretty good teacher, and so I, I brought a teaching ministry to that church, and people responded very well uh, to it. And we had some people come to Christ, as well as a lot of people that wanted some serious Bible teaching mm-hmm. that would come. And so after that, I was invited to uh, join a faculty at a little college in Dallas, Texas, and serve for for a few years there before being invited to join the faculty at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So we spent seven years at Southern, uh, four of them in administration. That's when I, I went never with the idea of moving into administration. But my peers, my colleagues, said, you got some organizational gifts that would show up in committee meetings and things, and you know maybe you could be our next dean. I kind of looked at them and said, I don't think so, you know. I, I was I was one of the youngest members of the faculty at the time. But uh, I was named the dean. I was just 38 years old and uh, then became the provost and served there. And then union called December of 1995. As you mentioned, I was 42, one of the youngest presidents mm-hmm. in the country um, at, at that time and served at union for 19 years. So blessed years in every way. I think it was a kind of a Camelot experience. Uh, most people don't have a very long honeymoon. We never had anything but a honeymoon mm. while we were there and then went to Trinity to k- kind of uh, be able to lead a seminary. I mean, Trinity is a has a law school, an undergraduate program, a strong graduate program in bioethics, but it's mainly a seminary. Right. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School is the heart and soul sure. of the school. So I had a chance to lead what I think is the finest group of evangelical scholars collected anywhere on one, you know, one campus in, in the country. And that was something I wanted to try, just to thank the Lord for the privilege of being a part of that. So getting into administration was never a goal, uh, but the Lord opened the doors and revealed that I had some gifts in mm-hmm. those areas. And he, he has been very kind and blessed our efforts. And one of the things that I found very 
interesting in reading your biography is just, again, how quickly you moved through those ranks Mm. from, you know, dean to provost to president of a of a significant university college. Um, And and so I, I what were some of the in those early days of being a president? Um, I can imagine it was like, you know, sort of, how did I get here? (laughs) So, you know, what did you do in those first couple years that you feel set you up for 19 years of success? Well, things were moving fast. You know, if you you see a new quarterback coming to the NFL, one of the things they often say is, the game is very fast. Uh, you get try to get enough experience till it kind of slows down, and you can see plays developing. So I, I felt like that at first that everything was happening very fast, and I was trying to get my arms around what all is involved. I mean, you think you understand what a president does when you sit that close to them as in the dean or the provost seat, but it's very different sitting in the president's role because all of a sudden you're not responsible for a sector of the institution, you're responsible for everything. Hmm. And you get a lot of credit for things you didn't do, and you get a lot of blame for things that you had (laughs) nothing to do with and didn't even know it happened sometimes. And that was kind of new to me to figure all of those things out, plus to relate to multiple constituencies, Hmm. students, parents, alumni, the community, the churches, you know, friends, donors, the, the multiple constituencies of an institution uh, most people don't see uh, because they only relate to one particular sphere mm. of that. And all of a sudden you've got to wear the hat to connect with, with everybody. So those were big adjustments for me at first because I my entire experience was on the academic side of the institution. So I had to learn student life, had to learn advancement, to learn the world of marketing and community relations and church relations. And so uh, I, I felt pretty good about the academic side of mm-hmm. things, but I was a novice in everything else. And mm-hmm. so people were kind to give me some time to figure it out. I had some good mentors along the way. and But by year two, we were kind of feeling like we understood what needed to happen and, and uh, put some strategic plans together that carried the institution forward. And we really lived out of one strategic plan after another. And so wow. I think from a, you know, you asked me what happened at Union because you told a bit of the story. It's one of the great stories in the history of Christian higher education, what happened there during yes. those two decades from being kind of a sleepy West Tennessee school to one of the more prominent yep. uh, institutions in the in the entire country. Um, and how did that happen? Well, I, I, the answer is God did it. You know, I, the, the, that is clearly the only answer. But if you had to say what happened from a human standpoint, what did you do? I, I think it was the intentional and strategic planning to, to say this is what we want to do. We had some clear aspirations, some very realistic goals, and some aspirational goals. And we worked very hard at both of those mm. and we prayed a lot and asked the Lord to, you know, to help us and to make sure that if we were going in the wrong direction, he would close that door quickly and make, so we didn't get off track. And, uh, but the, this, the, the planning process did several things. It gave us a, a playbook out of which to work. It brought the campus together. 
it united us in our uh, in the pl- the planning process itself united us and gave us common goals. So the board, faculty, staff, mm-hmm. uh, student government leaders, as well as the administration, knew what we were trying trying to do. Everybody was pulling in the same direction. Well, this is all applicable to all of us, right? Being strategic, whether you're leading a Christian higher education institution, a church, a business, your own family. Yeah, a parachurch nonprofit. Um, It it sounds like, one, you tended towards a very collaborative process that included many individuals. How long would you say your planning process typically took and then for what duration would your plans last? Yeah, the, the planning processes were six to nine months, and then we set them up on four- and five-year increments. So that, that meant that at about three years in, we were starting to plan for the, for the next one. With the idea, always there was some continuity, and it's never like, well, we finished that, now let's go do something different. Mm-hmm. You know, it's trying to connect the dots and keep the energy and um, momentum going so they create synergy and we're kind of moving forward in multiple uh, context and multiple directions at the, at, the, at the same time. Would the structure of those plans um, change? In other words, you know, like length of them or the metrics or the categories you were looking at, or did you stick with a pretty, I mean, was there a, a methodology you were using uh, think, from think, some textbook or what, 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 what was? I think each one Came a little more sophisticated and okay. a little more in depth. Um, so the the first one was, you know, I look back on it and see it as, you know, the the, the Lord did some good things to us, and we probably didn't know exactly what we were we were doing. And you know, I say we kind of made things up as we went along. It wasn't quite that uh, spontaneous, but we we were learning as we went because, mm-hmm. as I said, I was forty two, and most of our team was fairly young as well and we we made some commitments to each other let's grow old together and see if we can't do this for a while and that really made a difference Mm. in giving us continuity in the plans and when challenges came and we faced one of the biggest challenges ever in the tornado of 2008 um, we had all been working together every leader member of the leadership team had been together for more than 10 years at that time. Mm. So we knew each other's strengths. We knew what each other could do. You can be responsible for this lane. You know, we just knew not to bother each other and could trust each other to, to carry things out. And, and that allowed us not to get in each other's way or uh, have to do things we weren't capable or prepared mm. uh, to do. And so I, I think the success at Union, if I can use that word, um, I'm not always comfortable using that because uh, the New Testament always talks about faithfulness, not success. But if there was success, from again, from a human standpoint, is, is that we had a, a complementing group of people, people whose gifts complemented each other and respected each other and trusted each other and built upon each other and therefore covered each other's weaknesses mm-hmm. in many areas way. And so it, it was not the president. It was a team. It was a leadership team that really made a difference and a very strong board that uh, you, you, an institution can only go as far as the board will allow it to go. And we were blessed with a wonderful group of board members. And all the right ingredients um, 
with God's blessing, together. it all came together. And it's You look back on it, and the only way to describe it is the providence of God and his kindness to us. I and mean, we talk in higher education or in our personal lives, churches, about weathering the storm. You literally weathered <laughs> uh, <laughs> the storm. And, and at least for, uh, I remember 2008, and I remember that tornado, and, and I was working at a, a college and, and young, and it and it. It was kind of like everybody heard about you, mm-hmm. what was going on at Union University when when that tornado happened. It, it revealed um, to the world all the great things happening, mm-hmm. yet you were dealing with a, a crisis. A crisis. Um, so tell us a little bit about that crisis and then, and then really the miraculous way uh, God carried you through. Yeah, February 5th, 2008, so it was a, a little over 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, 7.02 p.m. in the evening, uh, EF4 tornado came right through the middle of the Union campus, uh, going 200 to 240 miles per hour. It just barely touched down on campus, uh, about 45 seconds. So just down and then back up again. But what it did, it just plowed right through uh, some of the academic buildings and destroyed the residential life area completely. Did $45 million worth of damage in 45 seconds. Wow. Um, I mean, my kids are good, but they're not that good, you know. (laughs) Uh, Students were, you know, dazed, confused. We had about, at that time, we probably, we had tried to get people off campus during the day because we heard we could have a bad storm, get to a safe place. But we had about 1,200 students that were on campus when it hit. Um. They were overwhelmed by the whole thing. We lost all power. The campus was completely dark. If we did one thing right during the day, we told everybody to charge your cell phones, and we used cell phones as flashlights throughout the the night to see our way around. Uh, But walls fell in. We had 11 students who were trapped under a fallen wall. It took us six hours to dig them out. And we couldn't just go and pick up the wall because if it, if we lost it, it would come down and they would be completely buried. And uh. So it was kind of like uh, unraveling pixie sticks, take a little bit off here and there and very delicately remove the wall so that they could. When we got to the last student, we thought we didn't know if he was still alive, but uh, he, he barely was, thank the Lord. But we took 53 students to the hospital that night with serious injuries. But by God's grace, no lives were lost. Looking back upon it, not only were we grateful that no lives were lost, but that was a way that allowed us to jump back in real quickly to start with the rebuild. Uh, Had we had to stop for weeks to grieve, uh, properly recognize the death of those students, I'm not sure what would have Happen. I'm not sure we could have been able to regroup the way we did. Um, but 52 of those 53 students graduated. Hmm, that's and, amazing. And um, it was just an, an amazing thing. But we lost the residential life area. So we had about 1,000 students that were placed in homes in the city of Jackson. People just opened up their homes, said, we'll take a student, we'll take two. And they kept them for three or four months till we could finish the spring semester. Um, the Black and Decker 
had a big business in Jackson. They opened their conference space to us for the business school. We had an ABC affiliate that said broadcasting communications can come meet with us. Uh, a big mega church had a huge music suite and said the music department can come and meet here. Our education school shared spaces at a K through 12 Christian school. It was the Union Diaspora. Wow. Um, every building project that we've been a part of from 1996 to 2008, we'd had the same contractors bidding on the projects, about five different contractors. And we'd done a lot of building on the campus. Those five contractors came together and said, we're not going to bid on these projects. We're going to collaborate. Hmm. We'll give you the best prices and the best service we can. So we had one architect and engineering firm coordinating five contractors that helped us rebuild the campus. Uh, and within nine months, we were functional. And within two years, it was everything was re- rebuilt. That's and amazing. you just look back and you say, the only way this happened is, uh, I don't know if you call it a, a miracle in a biblical sense, but it's certainly a providential act of, of God and his intervention. His, his angel spared us that night and then his enablement of bringing everyone together. And again, the strong board made a big difference in crisis and led us through. And I just prayed every night, the Lord, don't let us make a mistake. Don't don't let us take the wrong turn here because we had so many decisions to make. I think I made as many decisions in the first 100 days after the tornado that I'd made in the first 12 years as wow. president. And so it was just overwhelming almost, working just as long as we could every day, little sleep, and come back and let's do it again. Uh, but uh, the, we, we watched and with amazement and and it was on super tuesday hmm. in february so the headlines of the news the next day are supposed to be either mr mccain or miss clinton they were the leaders at the time you know won their primaries good morning america the today show and fox and friends all led with the union story wow. and our students had opportunities to tell their stories of their faith that they were not despondent in the midst of this that they had hope in god and it became a platform for the Union mission to be amplified. And so God used something very tragic for good. If there was ever a Genesis 50, 20 story, that was it. And it is a great lesson on all fronts, right? Great team, been together, uh, great board, you know, not looking for a disaster, certainly. <laughs> and certainly you wouldn't wish this uh, on anyone. Right, but prepared in case something like this happened. And then when it does happen, able to respond in a way that, you know, ultimately brought, brought great good yeah. um, in the you midst know, of C- difficulty. Katrina had hit New Orleans in 2005, and we had watched institutions there hmm. try to struggle to, to respond. And that's when I think, I hate to say this, this is nine years into my presidency, but that's when we took disaster planning seriously what would we do if something like that hit us all of a sudden it's close enough to home you know we, uh, how will we help our students how will we communicate what, what happens if we get into the crisis that some of those schools are in so we kind of went to school watching that as much as anything to as a leadership lesson but sure it, it became a reality lesson 
and wow. the doctrine of God's providence became anything but an abstract doctrine. It was real and guided our every step along the way. And in your own personal story, um, again, this is my outsider's perception. Mm-hmm. Certainly you were a, were a well-known entity um, mm-hmm. amongst Christian higher ed institutions, but that seemed to then catapult you into a place of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dr. Cadop even says that if you ask people who are the influencers uh, amongst Christian colleges in the United States and beyond, David Dockery's at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it provided then you a platform um, to then teach so many of us uh, who have been in this space and so appreciative. And I was it, privileged from 2005 to 2007 to serve as the board chair for the Council for Christian mm-hmm. Colleges and Universities. So by doing so, I'd become no. somebody that people knew mm-hmm. within the Christian college world and and theological seminaries as well. And then, so, this, so when this happened, I was not, you know, uh, an anonymous mm-hmm. person. Right. But the Lord used it to give us an even more significant platform and to kind of begin to tell the union story in new and different ways and to, and to help us think even more strategically about what it means to lead Christian institutions and organizations. And beyond that, you've also written 20 books, I believe something it is, like or something like that, which is kind of mind-boggling to me to how do you run an institution, you know, sort of become a spokesman for Christian higher ed and and write 20 books along the way. But what was important to you ab- about continuing to be a researcher um, and continuing to produce material um, that was research-oriented and, and blessed many others. There are different models for the Christian College president, or and uh, I, I don't know that there's just you know one that is right or better than the others, but the the, the long-term traditional model of the when Timothy Dwight was at Yale University in the you know, 200 years ago, uh, he was the the theologian, thinker, scholar, president. And I don't know that I'm a thinker, scholar, but I was a president. But I wanted to try to help us as an institution and then as institutions to think seriously about our mission and so I thought, this is the one thing I can contribute. I, I don't have the greatest business skills. We, we were blessed to be able to raise a little money. I learned how to do some fundraising and advancement things. I'm sure I can learn lessons from you. So I don't, I don't have a corner on any of those markets. But the one thing that I really worked hard on was trying to think, what is it that makes Christian colleges distinctive? Hmm. You know, let's understand our mission and try to do that well. And so I've tried to write about those things from a from a leadership perspective, from a Christian worldview perspective, from an educational perspective, from a theological perspective, from a church perspective. And so I've tried to, to if, you, if you go back and look at a lot of things, that they look different because I'm coming at the question differently, sure. but I'm really after one thing. It's the thing. same question, yeah. yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah. And 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 I, I that was one thing I wanted to touch on, and I could ask you about leadership questions in higher ed forever. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you is in this day and culture that we live in, uh, your perspective on the place for Christian higher education and its its value proposition um, is under attack. Um, and uh, the the morals we stand for and the missions we stand for are under attack. And just what, what you see mm. as important for Christian yeah. higher ed in yeah. this day. We're clearly swimming upstream. And um, so we have to work twice as hard to, to demonstrate academic quality. And to, that's what gives the platform to share our, our mission. We, you know, uh, Elton Trueblood used to say, holy shoddy is still shoddy. <laughs> and so just being pious is not enough. We have to have quality, and we have to push for excellence, not out of pride, but because we want to honor God and uh, do things the very best that we can do them. And uh, in, in doing so, then we have the academic quality to offer students so that they're prepared to serve in the marketplace when they leave our institution. But we're not about just giving skills and creating competence. We're about learning to think Christianly, developing character, and transforming lives. So the, the whole idea is there's information, formation, transformation. Unless we do all three of those, I'm not sure that we're really doing Christian higher education. Mm. And just focusing on warm-heartedness or Christian activities, having some mission trips during spring break is not enough. So we have to learn how to think Christianly in every area across the board. Mm. So I think if I've made a contribution over the last two decades, I think that's it. And I think unless we do that going forward, it's going to be hard for us to survive um, uh, be, be, because the financial pressures, the, the cultural pressures, the legal pressures are unlike anything we've ever seen before, and they're all coming at us at the same time with a kind of confluence that's hard to know which direction to mm-hmm. turn sometimes. Um, but I, I, I'm still hopeful about Christian higher education, and I'm willing to invest in it and going to, whatever years the Lord allows me, I'm going to continue to invest in it moving forward um, in, in some different ways, hopefully helping other leaders strengthening them, unifying them, trying to synergize the efforts. There may be need for partnerships, shared services, mm-hmm. mergers, ways of thinking about doing things differently, but the mission has to stay at the core and at the center and find ways to strengthen that because if we don't, then we easily get sucked away. And the, unfortunately, the sad history of Christian higher education is the story of institutions yep. falling away since sixteen. 16- 36 since the Harvard uh, initiative. And I, I want, to the degree that I'm able, helps institutions not follow that path, but let's follow a different one. It's, you know, some institutions think, well, it's better for us just to survive and do what we have to. I, I say, no. Better, you know, better to cease to exist than to cease to matter. And, um, I'm willing to say that in any context. Mm. So, so 
because a former Christian institution has become a great institution, I'm I not really to, to applaud that. Uh, I, I almost I see it as sad, frankly, and this is what could have been had there been a way to hang on to what was at the heart of things. And not to pick on Harvard, because it is academically the premier institution, or Yale and Princeton can fight over that. <laughs> but, um, you know, at the core of its mission is the word veritas. But in 1636, most people don't know it's on that seal. It said veritas pro Christo et ecclesia, truth for Christ and his church. It wasn't long till the et ecclesia dropped off, and then very soon, within 100 years, pro Christo was gone. And now Veritas is there without an anchor, and it's a very amorphous concept on the Harvard campus. But what a beautiful mission, truth for Christ and his church. That's what we're all about. Mm -hmm. And it takes all of those things together, a commitment to, to truth, to academic excellence, commitment to the lordship of Christ, and a connection to the churches. And if we don't have all of those things, I don't think we can carry out the mission well. And uh, so it's not a, well, which of those three would you like? It's all, or they all start to hmm. become uh, un- un- untangled. Hmm. Your your ability to synopsize 20 books in just a few sentences was beautiful <laughs> there. And I thank you for the way that you have continued to stay engaged with grace on multiple hmm. levels, not just as your alma mater, but I know you and Dr. Cato have a close relationship, and he shares your value um, for truth and under the lordship of Christ and for the benefit of the church. And he often says, you know, we have to have the same mission we've had since 1937 when, when Alva J. McLean was professor and chief theologian on mm. campus, um, yet the methods have to change, right. and the way we do it is going to have to change, but the, the mission... Uh, has to stay the same. We just had a, a board of trustees meeting, and a trustee board member called it Thriving in Babylon. Hmm. And um, Daniel figured it out, and we have to figure out um, how to thrive in Babylon. And I thank you for the way that you have led uh, many of us institutions in thinking that way and continue to do so and will continue to do so. So well, I appreciate you. you. You're very kind to have me uh, part of this conversation today. I've enjoyed it. I'm grateful to God for Grace Seminary. It was three amazing years that have shaped my life for the past four decades. And so I'll always be grateful uh, for what God has done here and pray for what God will continue to do in this place. Well, thank you. And thank you to everyone out there for listening to the Grace Story podcast. Music was written and produced by Dr. Wally Brath, Assistant Professor of Worship Arts at Grace College. And thank you to our co-producers, Andrew Palladino and Rick Neer. And as always, if you can do a huge favor and rate or comment on this podcast wherever you retrieved it from, we would be so grateful. Until next time, live your best grace story today.